This is episode 95 of the Rev Thinking Podcast. I'm Joel Pilger. It's a noble mission, what I'm, what I'm envisioning and changing about it, but, um, but I think it can be done. Welcome to Rev Thinking, the podcast for creative entrepreneurs who know the best way to deal with the future is to create it. Ashley Kohler is president and executive producer of Awesome Incorporated. Now, in Ashley's bio, it says that Awesome is known for both commercial and series production. Also, that prior to starting Awesome Inc., that Ashley spent seven years at Cartoon Network, ultimately serving as director of production, on-air, and program production. I'm excited to sit down and bring you this conversation with Ashley for a number of reasons. One, I've been working a bit with Ashley off and on for the past year or so. So I'm, I'm excited to say she is a, a RevThink client and very proud uh, to, to have her amongst that fold. But also, there's a bit of hometown pride because I am a native of Atlanta, Georgia. I was born and raised there. And when I visited uh, Ashley's studio last year, I was immediately impressed. Wow, look how cool this is. What a great shop. What a great team. Great facility and so forth. Right near my old alma mater of Georgia Tech. And of course, ironically, Ashley is a Georgia alum herself. So we should be rivals, but now we're on the same team. And uh, it's been exciting just to get to know her. And now I'm excited, of course, to help you get to know Ashley. And I'll, I'll also just add this. Another reason I'm excited is Ashley represents a, a much needed diversity in the owners in our industry. And this, this was really brought to my attention here just a few months ago when a, a friend of mine who is uh, a former client, now uh, an executive at, let's just say, one of the biggest household names in the entertainment industry, he reached out to me and asked, he said, Joel, we are working with a lot of studios and production companies and we need more diversity. I'm wondering, can you perhaps recommend or introduce us to some shops that uh, have a more diverse ownership? And of course I was flattered and said, yeah, let me get back to you. Went and did my homework, looked down my lists and all of my clients and people across the industry. And I was saddened because out of several hundred studios that I know personally, I was only able to come back to my friend with a handful of names that represented diversity. So bringing someone like Ashley to you, uh, similarly, just a few weeks ago, I had Aaron Sarofsky on the podcast. Uh, it's exciting for me because I think this kind of message and the story of owners like Ashley is something that the world needs to hear because if you are an aspiring owner or you're a, a freelancer or an employee like Ashley was years ago and you you think, hey, I may want to be starting my own business or maybe you started your business and you're looking for inspiration and encouragement, there is, uh, there, there, there's reason to be encouraged. I think you're going to find Ashley's story very, very interesting. Lastly, I'm just going to say this. When you hear Ashley's story of how she started her business, why she started her business in the first place, 
it's so curious because it's a common story that if you're an owner, you start your business for one reason, and then years later, it's grown, it's evolved, there's, there's success, and you have to go through this lifelong school of continual transformation. And Ashley describes this as a noble mission. And I think it's really interesting to see how her, the thing that drove her to start her business in the first place is very different than what drives her today. But I'll let her tell that to you in her own words. So I hope you enjoy my conversation between myself and Ashley. I started in advertising and I thought I was going to go down the path of advertising. And um, so I, I, I was doing ad, ad stuff at Georgia and, and I had internships in advertising. And then I started in like live action production companies, one in Atlanta. And then I moved to New York and I was, so I was, I was kind of, I knew I kind of wanted to be a producer during all that. But uh, when I was in New York, I, I, you know, they let me produce some small stuff. I was like the office manager. I kept getting these office jobs, answering the phones, and then they would let me produce stuff on the side. And so there was a, a stop motion, a kind of director that did a lot of stuff with like real crafty stuff. Like he would shoot with a Bolex and, and paint and paint on the film and strip stuff out and whatever. And, um, so I worked a lot with him. They, they would let me produce stuff for him. And, um, one of the spots we worked on, or I got to produce for him, the third, first thing I got to produce for him by myself was nominated for a regional Emmy. And I just thought, oh wow, you know, it was a PSA. I just was like, okay, you know, this is really something. And they really let me be creative with him. And I, I, I found myself being a creative producer. And I thought, I thought that what I was bringing to the table, because it was problem solving. It was, you know, I totally remember, and I've told this story so many times, but, um, he wanted to, and we were young. I mean, we were kids young, like really young, early 20s. And he wanted to do a helicopter shot of New York. And and I was like, we don't have the money for that. There's no money for that. Yeah. And he, we were shooting like on a Bolex and stuff. We were shooting film, of course. I was like, there's no way. I can't, you know, we can't afford that. And um, so I called a, a tour company and I was like, can we take a camera on the tour? And they were like, yeah. And I said, any camera? Can we take any camera? Yes. And I, and the seats on this tour of the city were 40 bucks. And I was like, when we go up there, can we ask you to go wherever we want? Yep. You, you know, it's a 20 minute tour of the city. So I booked him a ticket on the, on the tour and you know, there were other people in there, but we weren't shooting for sound. And I was like, $40, you got your aerial shot of Manhattan. And so all he wanted was one shot of this one, you know, building or whatever. And so he got his aerial shot for $40 and I felt like a creative producer that was making his dream come true for his spot and you know that was when i first started to feel like okay i can i can make i can make these guys dreams come true for for and this is what being a creative producer is about and so ironically um i was leaving new york to come back to atlanta and the owner of that production company knew the head of the department at cartoon network and he called and put in a word for me to get a production coordinator job there. And that's how it kind of got put together. And when I, when I started interviewing for that job and I came down and I, and I, uh, interviewed with those people and I met those people and I went into that department, I didn't know what an on-air promos department was when I, when I went there and I was like, Oh, I really felt like that was the Island of Misfit Toys. I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where my people are. These are these, you know, this is this collection of weirdos 
and you know makers and weird you know weird people that love weird stuff and I thought if I don't get this job you know this is gonna be crazy I had to interview a, a number of times to get in and and then I got there and I stayed there for eight years and I loved it and we made tons of crazy great stuff during that period of time it was a great um a great period of time a great job well I'm I'm I love that term creative producer and I think there's maybe several different flavors of it um so as we as we talk more about your story and stuff I'll be really curious to unpack that a bit more uh because in a way there's almost some people would consider it an oxymoron like some people that are uh right that are creatives look at what producers do and they say oh I could never do that and then some producers look at what creatives do and say I could I could never do that and then to have a person that is a creative producer I think is actually really interesting but before before we go down that thread so uh coming back to Atlanta and you make you make it into Cartoon Network and now you're I mean yes now you're working with uh the fun people and the creatives and the the weird folks but you're also you also just have a job right you're working for a big company and was that uh was that a good experience generally oh god it was it was the best it was the best time it was the best time to be there for the network it was the best time to be there in my sort of time of my life you know the age I was and the time um so it was it was a fantastic time to be there um a lot of people uh call it the golden era of of the network because I was there before Adult Swim launched I was there before Boomerang launched and while those things happened uh weirdly I worked on the launch campaign for cartoonwork.com <laughs> like I was there during a lot of wow. change. Um, right. And, and uh, you know, during that period of time, Cartoon Network went from just being a place where Ted Turner, you know, bought a bunch of Hanna-Barbera shows and had a, you know, sort of, it just was a place to house all those things to having its own original series and, and you know, launching them and, to, and it being this, whole other thing and it was a it was a really amazing period of time and we made a lot of really cool things and the funny part was um it wasn't just animation we made a lot of live action stuff too and um we just made stuff made and made and made and made and again i when i got there or when i started that job i didn't know what an on-air promos department was or did so we did a lot of packaging stunts uh, program production interstitials I mean we just made a ton of stuff during that period of time so it was a great time to be there I lo- yeah it, it's um it, I can remember that those days as well when someone first clued me in when I was a young man <laughs> like yeah there's a promo department and they make all the promos and I'm like promos meaning yeah kind of like the commercials for the shows and there was that light bulb moment realizing, oh, right. I've been watching these all my life and thinking these were just commercials and not realizing there's this whole category. Now, I'm curious, though, at a Cartoon, when you were there, I'm guessing you also were exposed to this thing called, wow, we can sort of mold the future. We can create stuff and it gets attention. It changes perceptions, attitudes. People get excited about things and they show up they watch these shows and then the advertisers want to get involved and so on and so on what what was it like being part of that i'm guessing golden age yes and i actually just was t- was talking about this recently how when we, when we first got there I, or when i was there i 
I realized uh, we were were so hungry for real advertisers. You know, we would look at other (laughs) kids' networks and be frustrated that they had real toy advertisers. And we generally, genuinely, and I remember being frustrated because uh, our spots were for Anne-Marie direct-to-video CDs, which Anne-Marie, I don't know if you're familiar, but it's a horrible, like, she's, well, well, I'm sorry, Anne-Marie, but... Um, <laughs> not kids, not something kids would want to listen to. I don't know why a lot of right. Anne Murray, um, just, just, I would, I would have killed for like a cereal ad or just a regular toy. There was just not much going on. We were, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of direct to, you know, direct marketing filler stuff. We didn't have a lot of great advertisers and, um, so we were pretty low and in the ranking for cable you know, ads. And, and so we had a lot of space to fill in those breaks. And, and so Uh I think that had a lot to do with a lot of the stuff we were able to make interstitial wise and things during that period. And um, so, yeah, I I think we were longing for real advertising and we were also um, because of the, where we started with just a lot of old HB cartoons and stuff that we just didn't have the ad sales drive that a lot of the other networks had, but it, it gave us a lot of room to play and, a, and not, not as many eyeballs on us and a lot of creative freedom. So we could do yeah, a lot. That's what I'm wondering is, is, is it the classic uh, necessity as the mother of invention in that you have this space that you need to fill you don't have big budgets, so all of a sudden you have to what? You have to be really creative. Absolutely. Like yeah, that's you started to live. That's that. how Adult Swim was born. I mean, I think you know ah. a lot of what we were doing was taking clips, taking existing shows, and doing a ton of lip flap stuff. Just 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 recording funny audio and lip flapping old cartoons to funny audio because we didn't have the budgets to make new stuff. And you, you look back at, um, how, you know, how a lot of those original things like space ghost came about and it's taking old footage and making something new with it because we didn't have the budgets to do, um, anything new, new animation. So a lot of our original stuff was taking old stuff and, and scissoring something new out of it. And it was very funny. I mean, um, it is. It, it was really creative people taking and making out of not much. And I think that's why people look back at it so fondly. It was like, that stuff was crazy. It was hilarious. It was weird. And then sometimes when you have tons of money, uh, you know, it doesn't always lend itself to that kind of creativity. Okay. So I bet that's going to come back up because when I hear creative producer, I immediately think start thinking of that same dynamic that sometimes having limitations is the genesis of innovation and being really crazy and actually creating something new because yeah when you have plenty of budget or plenty of time or both you tend to go to the current popular solutions like oh let's go do a big budget shoot let's go on location absolutely. let's rent a helicopter at full price sure absolutely and it was funny i'm uh, gonna ask myself a question that <laughs> that you were gonna talk to me about but i think um i think it's one of the interesting things about our studio i think we are born of a lot of the Adult Swim shows that we do and a lot of that style of work. And as we grow and evolve, I think people, um, I, I think people think of us for that style of work. People think of us for um, 
Adult Swim style humor, Adult Swim style um, edgy comedy, and and limited animation. Um, I think people come to us because of some of those type of projects that we've done in the past. And it's interesting as we've evolved as a studio, um, we were born of those limitations in a lot of ways. And I think um, it's been interesting as our company has evolved and our budgets have increased, how we capture that same type of magic um, on different types of projects when you don't have the same kind of limitations. And so it, it is an interesting challenge to maintain, um, maintain that kind of magic on a different type of project. And you certainly don't want to say, you know what we need here is less money, less resources. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, no, the business owner is never going to go down that path. Um, but let's, 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 let's get, uh, into the present. I mean, you're running Awesome Inc. And I'm actually really curious to hear, knowing your background as a producer, it's actually pretty interesting because most creative studios are launched by creatives, right? Creative director, animator, an editor, a designer, whatever says one day, I'm tired of freelancing. I want bigger opportunities. I'm going to put a name out and hang a hang a sign on the door and I start my company and that's the common path. How did a producer type person come to start a company yes. that is now awesome? Well, I, I started it as a partner with a creative. Um, uh, yes. Aha. Yes. So um, I had been at Cartoon Network for sort of eight years and um, really didn't, there was no real reason for me to go. I had a great job and I loved it. And there was no real reason for me to leave other than everybody at Cartoon loved their job and wasn't really, there wasn't a lot of people leaving. So there wasn't a lot of places for me to go. And I kind of just had a, uh, an itch to, you know, for whatever was next in my path. And I, it wasn't necessary. I wasn't sort of like, I'm leaving to do this. It was sort of, I'm leaving and I'm going to do something next. So, um, there was an art director at uh, Turner Classic Movies who also was sort of deciding to leave corporate things had just changed and at, at, we had a lot more ad sales uh, and marketing oversight and things were just changing at the network at that time and um, it was a lot more about meetings and and uh, management yeah. and just it was just different so I took a small business class at Emory three-month certificate class about you know running a business and um, <laughs> I love it so um <laughs> He and I decided... And you learned everything there is to know about business. You haven't I, learned anything right, since, right? All I needed was my three-month <laughs> class. Um, so he and I decided to do this thing together. And ironically, like you say, I, I remember sitting down with him and saying, you know, I, I am a very creative person. And if we do this, I definitely want to make sure that I have creative input. Um, it's not just me, producer, you creative. It's us entering this together and I'm, I'm, you know, going to be a part of the creative process. And he was agree, you and know, in agreement was with there, that. Um, what, what was the actual <clears throat> moment that kicked off awesome? Was it something like, Hey, we just landed a project or cartoon said they, they're looking for somebody out of house to send this nope. to This could be our, nope. our moment. Like what was the, 
Or did you just say, nope, I resign and I rented an office space and hopefully it all works out? Uh, it was just, I resign and uh, I gave them 30 days notice and they gave me a party, which makes zero sense. They gave me a, a party at the Botanical Gardens like I was retiring. Oh my gosh, that's funny. It, I just quit my job. <laughs> did you get a gold watch? <laughs> Uh, which which is just symptomatic of other days. I love those people. They were so amazing. I just was like, I'm quitting. So they gave me a party and we had, I gave 30 days notice. And so I, um, I yeah, I took my class. There wasn't a job. There wasn't anything. I, I started the studio with $500 and a laptop and we didn't have a space. We worked out of his back room of his house for about six months and yeah, they Cartoon gave us our first project when we started the studio. Um, so we went back to them and we're like, hey, we started this thing. And they're like, okay, here's the thing. So we did our first job for them. And, um, and you know, we, we started, you know, combing the trades and getting work for other networks and different things. And uh, yeah, no, it, what, there wasn't a, we weren't sort of like, we got this client in the bag. Of course, we figured that they would get, give us work because we were friendly but it wasn't yeah. you know it wasn't a sure thing we just started doing it we just jumped off a cliff and was the initial focus to do promo yes work for yes. tv networks that was sort of like hey this is what we know let's just go after more of what we know yes exactly and i think that's been the, the difference so we started off doing short form promos packaging all of that and um the real change came in 20 and that was 2006 and in 2011 i was like you know how about we try our hand at long form which i knew nothing about <laughs> but i just figured it was longer longer commercials 11 minute long commercials it's, all right so i'm curious what's behind that right is there this some sort of mad insane uh desire to create that's fueling this that you're saying, oh, let's get into long form. I don't really know anything about the business part of that. Again, I'm putting words in your mouth, but well, I'm just really curious what was what was really beneath that? Um, a love for the for the the content or the craft or just some crazy wild hair that you hadn't yet. Plucked? Well, that and also money. <laughs> it's it's okay. it's that um, you know I. I am I'm very much, uh, I, I love animation. I love making, I, lo I love all of that, but I also am just a strong, uh, you know, owner. And I, I'm, you know, always thinking about how, what's next for the studio and how we continue to evolve and stay afloat. And um, at that time, you know, we had been through a recession, you know, we've been through 2008 and uh, seen things be okay luckily entertainment was protected and you know when the, there's a recession luckily for us people go home and watch their television so we had been okay through that but for me the difficult part of being a short form studio is that you don't know when your next meal is coming it's sort of like little bits one month one month one month you know job 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 but the the beauty of long form is that you know if you get um the margins are not the same the margins are higher on short form work, but with long form work, um, you you have a contract for a year. You have a year or 18 months of work and you know where those meals are coming from for a year. Once you get a 
10 episodes of a show, you're going to be working on that for a long time. So uh, the thought process was, if we can put a team into place to be doing this show, uh, then we can stay over here doing our spots, 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 and then we will have a steady stream of income coming for the next year and a half, and we'll know where our revenue is coming. So, um, you know, we had these relationships in place from the network, and um, I was able to sort of talk to them. They weren't happy at the time with the studio they were producing Squidbillies and Aqua Teen with, and they were long-running series with established pipelines. And um, so I just I went to the network and I said, hey, how about we bid on these shows? And they said, okay, wow, bid on them. Now, now, there's such a common pattern in the industry. And I'm very curious for your perspective on this, because I will say, like, whenever Tim and I speak in public, there's often this moment when we'll say, hey, who here in this room full of owners? So these are production company people and studio owners and so forth. How many of you here want to get into content or produce long form? And every hand goes up, right? Because everybody has an idea for a show. And what I found, like even in part in my journey, I had the same desire. Um, you know, I'm going to create the next Veggie Tales or something, right? Back in back in those days, I'm really dating myself now. But um, I'm curious, what would what would be your perspective or advice for someone who has that desire but doesn't yet realize what it's really like? Because so many owners have that dream, don't really ever get over the hump. And I'm hearing a couple things in your story that I find really interesting that are a little bit different than, oh, I've got this cool idea and I spent a year making a bunch of, uh, you know, making a pilot and now I'm out selling it. Your path was somewhat different, but you ultimately accomplished it, which is, which is huge because very, very few people do. Well, it's, there's a nuanced difference in that I think a lot of people obviously want to create their own original IP. And we're technically still a service provider. I mean, we're, we're animating against uh, someone else's IP. And we're working with Cartoon Network um, and Adult Swim as a service provider. And I think it's a bit different than other people's dream to create their own content and own that content, which I share. I mean, I we share that dream. And we I think we've... we. Uh, can appreciate that struggle. It is a very, very difficult dream to achieve. Um, I think it's been interesting for me as a owner to to feel that we've now uh, worked on a number of successful properties and still feel the same struggle a lot of owners do that's like, oh, but how come we can't launch one of our own? Or how come we can't break down those same walls to get our own IP out there? It's very, very difficult to accomplish. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't work on long form and be successful at it as a service provider. It just means that you have to decide if that if that delineation matters to you. You know, if it if it has to be your own original content or not, or what you're willing to invest in it. Um, so, well, I'm wondering is there a is there a crawl, walk, run strategy? argument to be to be made here because perhaps I would submit of course I know you and a lot of sort of behind the scenes um, because of our collaborations but is there something to be said for you're perfectly positioned now to start pursuing creating your own IP doing your own content because you've already solved 
so many of the other issues that other people have not solved. Like you have capacity, you have pipelines, you have obviously a, a substantial team with substantial resources that are doing short form projects, long form projects, right? That are not your IP. But I would say it seems like you're very well poised to make that final step. And is that perhaps a path looking back now, you would say, yeah, I would still do that same path again. I think we're going to get there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, we've been able to uh, learn a lot and not have to spend our own money doing it. <laughs> you know, we've been able to figure out a lot of things that work and don't work with pipelines, with software, with uh, just operations, all those things. Um, if we were trying to do all that and develop our own IP at the same time, it would be expensive and time consuming and difficult. Um, I know a lot of people try to try to go down that path, but um, a lot of times they're successful. I mean, there are a lot of, of studios that make that leap and, um, and, and make it happen. I think at, you know, it's just like, it's just like predicting anything else, you know, with the stock market or anything else, there was a lot less content 10 years ago when I started doing this, um, than there is now. And so if you were an early adopter and you were sort of a visionary that tried to create stuff back then, and you jumped in and, and you had something that people hopped on at that time, then it may have been a different, um, a different story. Now it's, it's bonkers of, of the amount of, of material that's out there, but it's also uh, kind of shocking how many, uh, people are in the market to buy your content and to, and to grab it. So I do think that, um, there's no real answer to that question because there are so many different stories and paths of how it happens. Um, there are so many kids making YouTube videos with their phone that are way more successful than, than we are. So it, you know, I don't know. I don't know that. I think that, I think that the way that we've done it does put us in a great position, but I don't want to discourage anybody from doing it the way that they're doing it, because I think they could equally be as successful as we could. Now, maybe give, uh, give someone listening a sense of proportion or scale just so they understand. So the journey that you've been on, so the studio has been in business about how long now and, and what's, what's the team look like? What's the team size and sort of the makeup of, of the folks at awesome. So right now we're, um, in production on three series. I'm, I'm hesitating because it, we're, we're sort of, always changing. And I should know the, yeah, it's never I simple. should have, uh, should have done my numbers before we hopped on the phone, but we're, um, we're in production on three shows, I believe right now. And, um, and I, I, it, it, it is genuinely changing every day, but we're close to about 50 people right now in the studio. Um, and is that, that's a mix of, uh, of staff and freelance. That's full time. That's about, full, that's mostly full time. Um, freelance pushes us, uh, probably past that a bit, but, but right now I don't think we have a lot uh, of people freelance M mainly we're, we're, um, we're all full-time staff remote because everybody's remote obviously mm -hmm. right now. But, um, so we're, we're at various stages of production on the different shows that we're working on. And, um, so the, the tough part about, um, 
series work is obviously the schedules involve hiatus breaks. So um, you ramp up and ramp down for production depending on the department and the and the um, season schedule for the show. And there's always extensions and there's always um, uh, just variations in the schedule. So so we're just not totally sure where things are stretching or, or landing or so we're in the middle of extending a number of people for different reasons and um uh you know so it's it's always a little bit different yeah. but we're around 50 people and is that uh is that predominantly animators how do you classify those people and then do you have a team of producers do you have yeah so i think salespeople, marketing people uh operations etc we have we have no salespeople or no marketing people we've never had a salesperson on staff which is crazy and we might change that we might have a, a new business person starting um sometime soon to help with some of that and we have a um we have pro- a team of producers we have um um and we have several producers and a head of production and then we also have um we have an operations manager at the studio and so some sort of support staff. And then the, the mis, misclassification that's, that's a little tough is that I think people think mainly it's animators, but we have within the teams for the shows, we have designers, riggers, uh, background artists, animation is of course a department, but then we also have compositors, so there's a lot of different, you know, people doing the the work on the shows that aren't just animators. There's a lot of different people, designers, and people that you know do the work on the show, character artists and stuff. Now I'm just thinking about okay, with that size of an operation that you're responsible for, that is quite a journey, and. I, I'll just, I'm curious to get your perspective on this. When you look back on the seasons that you've been through, did you find certain transitions more challenging than others? Perhaps say when you went from 20 people to 25 or 30, <laughs> or when you went from 30 to 35, because there, I don't, I don't think uh, many people, most people in the industry have not been through those transitions. Uh, and if you haven't been through them, you don't know what to expect. You just think, hey, more is good and more and more is better. And and here we go. Yeah. Um, what's that been like for you? This, you know, the past couple shows have had us closer in the in the ballpark of 30, between 20 and 30 people. And uh, this is the first year. And it and it certainly has to do more with COVID, I think, than anything. Um, but this is the first year that there are people that work at the studio that I'd never interviewed and that I don't know that we don't know each other. And they are, and that's, that's been a very different change for me in the last year. Um, where I, I own a company and there are people that work at the company that I've never met. And that has been a very big change for me. Um, because it's always been a very personal, uh, experience the studio for me and um so i think the the what's happened with the change in us moving fully remote and the size increase happening at the same time and all of these things have really changed the experience and i uh i feel like even if even if they had happened separately if we had grown 
and had not um, moved fully remote, I feel like I still would hopefully have a more personal relationship with all the employees. And we've tried to do some mm-hmm. of that. I've tried to set up one-on-one meetings with as many people as we could through everything and stay um, connected in as many ways as we can. But it's difficult to maintain the personal relationships that I had with everybody at this scale. Uh, so that's been tough. Well, I I, uh, I I remember a moment in my journey, and I'm gonna I'll, I'll 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 take my experience and apply it to you. And I'm curious if you've had this moment when you you say, you know what, I need to spend quality time with everybody on my team at some point, right? It's got to be personal. I've got to imbue them with my dreams and vision and and see how you know help them in their career, all these things. And you set aside, I'm going to spend an hour every week taking somebody to lunch or <laughs> spend an hour on Zoom nowadays, right? And then you do the math and you say, wait a minute, that's going to take 50 weeks. So I'm not going to get back to this person until next year. And then you think about your, your poor team and they're like, yeah, you get lunch with Ashley once a year. Yay. And then you just start realizing there's a reality. Yeah to being an owner of a studio that is, you know, growing and, and scaling. How does that feel to you? It's difficult and, and weird and it doesn't feel, uh, I know if I was on the other side of it, I would feel uh, not so great about that. So we, um, yeah, I mean, we we would have lunches on Friday when we were back in the studio and I, I we would all go and um, feel connected in that way. and. Uh, but yeah, we're, I'm trying to, to sort through some of those feelings from my side and feel how, you know, feel out how we, um, maintain our culture and we connect in a, in a more personal way because I do feel like it's, uh, certainly changed. And I do, I do remember what it was, what it felt like just to be a cartoon and know the head of that network, which was, you know, hundred, 200 people at that time. I really admired RGM and I uh, wanted to be more connected to him at that time. And, you know, I was just a director when I left, but it was funny the day I left, he called me to his office and he was like, uh, I heard you're leaving. And I didn't even really know he knew who I was. And he goes, I think this is kind of a mistake. And, you know, is there anything we can do? And I'm like, it's been a month and this is my last day. It's kind of, so he's like, I'm going to Japan. But when we get back, when I get back, maybe we should have lunch. And I'm like, I quit. <laughs> so we went and had lunch and it was so freeing because I could tell him whatever I thought and we could talk. And I, one of the things I said was, I just wish you were more available to everybody and, you know, we could connect more and mm-hmm. there was a way and, um, he tried to talk me into staying and it was a really pivotal moment for me. He was like, we can find you a job. Let's just make up a job, you know, make a job. So I had this decision of like a made up position at cartoon or whatever and starting my own company. And I jumped off this cliff. I still jumped off the cliff and one and started this company. Um, That's so interesting because part of what I'm hearing is that as you're of course telling him, hey, I really admire you a lot. And if I had been able to work with you more closely, that may have impacted my journey and my time here at Cartoon. So I'm guessing you walked away from that experience in a way telling yourself, I'm not going to make the same mistake. Oh man, I, there are so many things that it's funny when you're in a, a larger organization like that, that you, that you say to yourself, or at least I did like, 
I'll never, I would never do that. I would never make this kind of decision. And then you find yourself as an owner, like, oh boy, here I am making this decision because now I'm, you know, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. And I understand why you have to make this decision for a group of people of this size. And you never thought you would have to do it. But um, you're older and you're more experienced and you're on the other side of it. And it's difficult. It's very difficult to be put in the position of uh, leadership and have all this weight on your shoulders. And, you know, especially, um, you know, weighty decisions like healthcare for people at a scale and annually healthcare comes up and it's grueling making these choices and you're not just making it for them you're making that choice for your own family your own you know life and it is a big decision and uh so you're making these pretty big decisions for everyone and you know on when you're on the other side of it this information just comes out and you're thinking like oh boy well here's what i have to do and i can't believe this but no one really knows that behind the scenes you are spending hours of grueling time weighing the pros and cons and picking and choosing and should I do this and this percentage and it's a lot it's a lot but it's not just that decision it's like what about this one and this thing and that um so while you're balancing all these like super fun creative like you know decisions during your day the other half of your day is spent uh, you know, selecting a payroll company or whatever, <laughs> you know, it's like. Now I'm having, I'm honestly having a bit of PTSD right now because you just totally described it, right? Is you're working with your team and you're all producing this amazing fun and creative and clever and clients are loving it. And then you're going into a meeting, like you said, to pick a payroll company or to choose the healthcare plan for this year. That's not going to, you know, cost right. millions or what have you. And it's incredibly stressful because often you know as the owner, I have to make the call here. I really can't give everybody full visibility into this process. Right. I've got to make the I've got to make the choice. And as you grow, things come at you faster, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure this is something that Tim has said to you on more more than one occasion. That as you grow, it's it's not just the size of decisions that get made, but it's the speed at which they have to be made and they're coming mm-hmm. at you. And of course the pressure is well, I got to make this call. I got to make this decision that's hopefully in everyone's best interest, even though, here's what my experience. You cannot make all the people happy all the time. And you make that decision and inevitably a third of the team just thinks, what the hell? This is like, who made this decision? Why is this happening? What's going on here? How, how, do, you, how do you manage that? Yeah, it's, it's extremely tough. And I think... Um one thing for me especially that's been part of my um trying to choose the word a a goal for me especially recently as i've learned more about series animation and um just the whole studio process is to is to try as much as i can to change some of that experience for artists uh and it's not a it's not a quick change is the thing. And you can, you can express your wishes and you can do your best and, and just stay on the path. Um, but again, as I mentioned earlier, with, with series artists, it's a bit different to uh, short form and motion design. And, you know, I think a lot of smaller studios and motion designers and 
um, they work at a different rate scale and they have, um, they have the ability to create a culture within their studio that they're smaller. They hire, um, for long-term, uh, for, for a long-term and they can sort of build a team and, and work on that culture. And it's, and it's sort of one thing with, with series animation, because of these hiatus breaks, you, it's a, it's more gig based. And so the artists Mm. come in and you know, you're going to be on a project for eight months and then you're going to be looking for another project and, and it's very transient. So the difficult part for these artists now, the plus side is they're extremely in demand right now, like really in demand. Everybody's fighting over the artists, especially here in Georgia because of the film tax credit. Um, so that's good. The, the downside for the artists is that from my perspective, they don't, they don't ever end up with, um, mentorship and, and, um, career goals set for them and real, um, guidance and, and, uh, sort of the the same thing that an artist or a designer would get at a studio home. So, um, you know, they come in and they do their job and then they're on to the next thing and back and forth and ping pong back and forth. And so for me, I've been trying to wrap my head around solving this, um, this problem of, of when we have them, how do we help them advance their career? Um, you know, Mm. giving them a 401k, you know, that's not something that most studios offer to them because of the short, you know, helping them save for retirement, um, helping them, uh, while they're with us, you know, um, uh, focus on what their career goals are as, as, you know, honestly, I, I understand they've got these short bits, but what do they want to do? How can they improve and how can we help them while they're with us and not just use them up and spit them out and use them when they come back, that kind of thing. Um, so, so, sort of treating them not just as tools to help us you know get our job done and um they're so talented they're real people and not just just uh working with them but but thinking of them as part of our team and um how we would uh treating them same as with any other long-term employee so that's been really important to to me and it's again it's it was it was sort of a real goal and mission for this year and we've had a lot of struggle with this remote work and with covid and i hate to set the blame at that we are still working on that goal and i think we're we're making some headway with it um it's you know it's just one of those things that's been super important to us as a studio um and i think i think a lot of studios should try to embrace this uh this type of thing it's important for these artists because um you know, it's something that kind of needs to change. Well, it's interesting. I'm almost hearing you just say, look, there's a long-term business strategy that sounds a little bit like the golden rule, right? Just called, Hey, how do you, how would you want to be treated, treat people that way? And it will, it will come back to you and to everyone in a positive way. But I'm also hearing you explain this interesting distinction of the differences between a small studio, so like a short form studio might be doing motion design or 
spot work, right? And a larger studio that's doing series work that's long form. And there's some interesting trade-offs there that again, because the larger studios are more rare, I don't think most owners that aspire to that even know about those trade-offs. And so it's, it's, it's kind of refreshing to hear you in a way say, look, there is a, there's pros and cons. I don't want to say there's a dark side. It's not like it's, it's something malicious, but um, there are some very real trade-offs. Uh, and if you want to go in that direction, would you encourage someone, sure, go there, but just know what you're getting into. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one of the trade-offs that I didn't totally think about was this culture trade where I think in your mind you're thinking, well, here's the place that I envision, you know, here's my culture and here's what I want to build. And even, even when you're building a place at scale, like an ad agency or a MailChimp or wherever it is, you can envision your culture and you can maintain that if you are able to hire um, and maintain your staff. But when, you, when you're working on series work, you're, you're hiring based on skills first and then and it's it's a it's a bit of a revolving door so it's difficult to maintain the culture when you have those parameters and we are working on changing that and maintaining it it's just it's very different than um than a than a traditional type of studio or environment where you bring people in you hire them based on a, a different set of parameters and then you keep them and they become part of your culture long term and um again i think it's a noble mission what i'm what i'm envisioning and changing about it but um but i think it can be done and i i i think our staff and the people that work with us i i feel that they appreciate what we're trying to do um it's just it's it's again getting your hands dirty trying to do that uh, work and and keeping the faith that you can do it. So we're just working hard to, to do it and we'll stick with it. Well, I love what you just described there when you said that you have this noble vision um, as you as you dubbed it. And I can't help but think that that's something that early in your career as a creative entrepreneur is very vague right? But as you move through your career and your company evolves and you start learning and learning and learning way beyond the, the, the three-month course at Emory, right? <laughs> um, I mean, how is that actually almost part of your role now as the creative entrepreneur is no one else can really have this noble vision and, and see it through. And if you don't have it, like you can't delegate that to someone, right? Yeah. I mean, I would be lying if I said that you know, 15 years ago when I started all this, I was like, you know, what I'm going to do is change this about this. Like, you know, I got into it and we were making promos and it was three, two or three of us and we were having fun and doing stuff. And then all of a sudden you kind of find yourself over here and you find yourself over there. And, um, I think your dream changes all the time. Your dream, our dream, my dream for this changes every year and you you just evolve as you learn new things about what needs changing or what uh what you know you get older and you 
your vision for things change. And, um, but I think it's, you know, we're all a bunch of artists and we're all a bunch of people that make things. So we're obviously dreamers. I mean, I think that's what we were born to do. So we, um, we're, we're never going to stop dreaming and we're never going to stop, you know, envisioning the ways that we can, uh, make things better and make things more fun. And if we did, then I don't know that we would be creating, we're, we're creating things every day. So I think that obviously what I see for the studio today is very different than what it was five years ago and 10 years ago and 15 years ago, because I'm always making it something different, you know? Well, we're definitely the odd ones, right? <laughs> like I think, I think about this this path, especially of the creative entrepreneur, and how ironic and surprising and wonderful it is in a way that you have this dream of, hey, I think I can go do this, and we can go make these things, and I can build a team, and maybe even be part of something larger than myself, and along the way, hopefully, live life on my own terms. Even uh, is that like I'm curious to hear? Does that resonate with you? And what what's maybe your what, what keeps that fire in the belly burning for you, especially when you go through a year like this? I mean, I just, I, it's funny how much I love making stuff. Like I know everybody you talk to probably does, but it's, it's a little silly to me how much I get excited by someone calling us to make a promo still. I'm like a new promo for FX. Like I'd love making promos and it's, 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 it's probably uncomfortable how much I get excited about it. And, um, and it's, uh, and I love animation. Like I really love it. I love working on it. I love working, uh, with the, with the people that we have at the studio and I'm genuinely constantly in awe every day. I'll just open a file and I can't, I just can't believe what, these guys are making and uh it's it's a little uncomfortable that i choose sitting here at this computer um for the amount of hours i do because i can't get enough of it it's 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 alarming it's it's silly like i could choose i could choose to go outside and go for a walk but i don't i yeah right well you're confirming one of my theories um that there's a common, I think, myth out there in the world that says, oh, an entrepreneur is someone who sees a need in the world and goes out and fills it. And this is the genesis of business, right? And then I say, well, that that's not true of the creative entrepreneur. Because for you, it's very personal. Like you didn't find a need out there called, oh, people need promos <laughs> and I'm going to go make promos. No, there's just this genuine love, love affair maybe with the stuff yeah that we're making yeah right it, yeah and and i think i think clients and your team and everyone else picks up on that and they're like man i just love being around people that are excited that love what they're doing and they have this enormous freedom to go do it in the way that they want to do it and the way they want to run business the way they want to live life so again i'm kind of getting goosebumps because i'm on my my soapbox but that's part of what i'm hearing in you and i, I just think that's super cool yeah it's it is funny and it, it's funny that it hasn't you know worn off after this amount of time and um my husband michael uh is an audio engineer composer and he so he's making sound for us and making making music for what we do and 
so it's 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 just it's sort of never ending like we'll spend too much time at you know over dinner and it just doesn't stop I mean we're just talking about it all the time making things and doing things and it's it genuinely um has been you know 20 plus years of my life of making these things and um I don't know when it will end or if it will and and if it will stop feeling the way it feels to to make stuff in um and it not feel as fun and cool as it does and um you know, and I've worked in live action plenty as well. I don't know why it's all so great and it's whatever, but, but, but animation is just, it's just amazing to see all these things come to life and, um, and again, work with these artists that you just can't, you just can't get over what they're able to do. And, um, I'm so grateful to this, um, this amazing staff we have and, and also the freelancers we work with, constantly um pulling off the the requests that we go for and things that we ask for and um you know you you always push it a little bit further you're always thinking one more thing that um we you know we haven't tried before and and you know we'll have clients come to us with asks and that's one thing that we love is you know we'll work with and it doesn't not matter if it's a network or an ad agency with a bank client or uh, a creator with a show that they've envisioned that we, um, you know, we, we work with these amazing creators that will come to us and, and have come to us. We'll, we'll have only done 2d and we have a, a show creators that'll come and say, well, we want you to work on our 3d and visual effects series. And we're like, we don't do 3d and visual effects. And they said, but we think you can do it. And you, you you didn't you've never said no to us before so yeah you should do that we, you, <laughs> you know <must. laughs> we will figure that out for them and we put together a team and work on their project and and bring it to life and um and that's been the the great um the great fun for us is figuring out how to uh solve the problems for our our creators or our clients and when they come and they say we have this animation and we want to do this and can you figure it out and we do and it's so joyous to do that, you know. All right. So as a as a father of a daughter who is a, I'm proud to say, a creative and pursuing a creative career, I, of course, have to touch on this subject of Awesome Inc. being proudly woman-owned. Yes. And I'm really curious to hear your perspective on that of is it something that is distinguishing is it a differentiator is it uh is it something that uh enables you to do what you do gives you uh a superpower <laughs> that is unlike others perhaps <laughs> well it's funny i think um you know i think it it, it when i started the studio I obviously had a male partner and it wasn't ever something that came up and as we discussed things change over time and and for for a number of years it was almost something that was intentionally not brought up that we were woman-owned and um and then you know things definitely uh changed you know we went through um sort of a a few years there with me too and the last couple of years where it, it 
it was important to bring up if you were a, a woman or minority owned business. It was okay to bring that up. And it was um, uh, sort of a time to, to be proud of those kinds of things. And I went for um, a women-owned certification and went through that process, which was not an easy process to, to go through. But I got our certified women-owned business um, and, and I put it on our website and I started, um, I started approaching things differently with, with how I let people know about that instead of just checking the box at ad agencies at the end of a project to say that we were woman owned. And the funny thing was it really resonated with people in a different way that I anticipated mainly with employees and, um, p- prospective employees with candidates that were coming in it mattered to a lot of them and not just women to men and women. Um, and I, I hadn't anticipated that being the case. I think definitely in the last year or two, um, clients were seeking out a variety of different voices and perspectives. And so it mattered to them to make sure that they were not just, um, going to the same, studios that they had always gone to, but making sure they were, were trying to approach a different, um, variety of, of perspectives. But again, I think with, with candidates, when they found out that our studio was women owned and ironically, the type of work that we had been doing this sort of edgy adult animation, it really surprised a lot of people in a good way. And uh, application after application after application, they would mention it and they would say, um, how much it meant to them to find this out and that, um, they were so happy to hear that there was more leadership and, um, leadership, especially in animation had historically always been male and it, it meant something to them. And that meant something to me. And, just seeing that come in was really encouraging to me and it helped us consider and make change and, and try harder in what we were doing to make sure that our leadership was diverse. And so I think, I think it has mattered. And it was funny because it never mattered to me before (laughs) when I started the studio, I was just a person starting the studio. But as I realized that it mattered to people, it became something that uh, I realized mattered. And so I think it does matter. And, and um, I, you know, when I, when I talk about it and get asked about it, and when people are frustrated about how many studios are not are, are just owned by white men and why aren't more studios owned by diverse people? My answer is always look, look, if you want to change this, then start a studio. <laughs> you know, I started this studio with a laptop and the savings I had in my account and which wasn't much. And I jumped off a cliff and anybody can do it. It takes uh, a lot of guts and a bold decision and, um, and a laptop, you know, <laughs> you just have to, you just have to do it. And if you want more diverse leadership, you have to be one of the diverse people that just jumps off the cliff. It can be done. You just have to make the choice and that's how the change is going to happen. Um, so 
But I think diverse leadership within studios and within companies is going to come by people uh, raising their voices and being bold and and making those changes. But I think it is it is really our time for that um, change, which is great. Well, the, the, the examples that you gave about <clears throat> candidates reaching out to you and them taking notice and them being somewhat surprised and what a difference maker it was uh, to them in terms of their choice to come work with you and your team. To me, it's almost... It's exciting, but it's also a bit heartbreaking because it makes me realize how much further we still have to go. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I, uh, my partner, he decided to leave the studio in 2013. So we've been uh, woman owned since 2013, which is a long time. And it's funny that, you know, I think a lot of people just would assume that we are, uh, you know, a partnership or, or not woman owned or that kind of thing until I, until I sort of started talking about it more. Um, I think there's not a lot of women-owned businesses. There's not a lot of women-owned studios. There's not a lot of female leadership in animation. And it is changing. Women in Animation is a great um, uh, association that I belong to and support. And they um, are striving for a a goal of more female leadership and more um, women in, in the business that are you know, in these roles. And it's, it's, um, it's odd because there's more than half of the students in animation are women, but they're not come. It's not right. coming across into the business for some reason in professional roles. Well, I was shocked. Um, a few months ago, a friend of mine who is works at, let's just say the world's biggest household name entertainment company, uh, reached out to me and said, Hey Joel, we're looking for diverse, diversity-owned businesses to to mm-hmm. work with, hire. Right? We want more vendors that are uh, come from a diverse point of view. Who can you recommend? And I said, Oh, I got you, man. And I went to my list of two hundred some odd companies, and I was heartbroken because I realized I could count on one hand, right, the number of yeah that are not just owned by the usual right. suspects right? White, white guys, et cetera. And that's really when it started to hit home because yes, I can look at universities like SCAD and look at this, you know, where my daughter is and say, gosh, half the students here are, are women. Uh, and there are a lot of minorities and other things, but the owners for some, there's something happening in our culture where those female animators, designers, creative producers like yourself uh, are not making that leap. They have the laptop, <laughs> like you said. I've got my laptop, but actually, I'm not. I'm not sure that I'm ready. So that begs this question, though. So, do you have advice for maybe the freelancer or the solopreneur person out there, or just smaller firms in their journey? So when you look back and you say, "Hey, if I was giving myself advice when Ashley was uh, a young <laughs> spring chicken, thinking about going out on her own and starting her company, what would what would some of the advice be?" Yeah, I yeah. So. Um... I think, I think my advice would be, if I was talking to myself anyway, I was afraid to say no more often. And it's, it's a very easy to say that from, from this side of things for sure, because you need, you need the money. (laughs) So you're saying yes a lot. Um, But I think 
I think I would say no more often because being more selective with your work ends up helping you curate your portfolio and your work begets your work. So it's, it's very hard to not just want to take a project to, um, get the money and get the money in the bank and keep yourself going. But if you can stay small and lean and try to say no more often, what I realized was after a while, when I did start to say no more often, and it was very hard, um, I think people would appreciate us a little bit more. We would, they wouldn't come to us with really small budgets. They wouldn't come to us with, can you do me this one favor and do it really fast and really cheap and then go to XYZ better studio when they had a better budget and a better timeline. Um, we were always just doing that one favor and then realizing that they weren't going to come to us when they had a real project. We were going to be the favor studio. And it took me a while to realize that. Um, I thought those favors would pay off for us and they didn't. They didn't ever pay off. So I realized when when I would answer with like, oh gosh, you know what? It's we're not going to be able to deliver the product that you deserve on this timeline or for that budget. And it would it would take everything I had to do to say it, but it would be the truth. And I would save my staff trouble. I would save me headaches and I would turn it away. And then the funny thing is they would come back. And they would come back later with with a better budget and with a bigger, or I would say no, and then they would come back the next week and say, oh, you know what, I found this this additional money or whatever it was. And it, you know, so if you can find it within yourself to say no more often, that's my, one of my biggest pieces of advice. My other biggest piece of advice is to, I would, for the longest time, uh, feel like I could and should do everything and and skimp and save and not hire uh, the help I needed. It's so hard to do it. But if you can not try to do it all yourself, try to hire really, really smart people and let them do their job and carve out money to do that, it's it's one of the best moves that you'll make. Hire really smart people and trust them to do what you hire them to do. Um, it's difficult. It's really difficult also to find that those funds and do that. But, um, but really, really smart move to hire talented people and trust them. I'm hearing, I'm hearing the business investor mindset in you now. And that is you do start to recognize at a certain point in time, I can do this myself or I can, I'm going to say spend this money, but really you're investing Mm -hmm. it, right? Because when you, when you hire someone greater than yourself who has that genius that you lack, you're, you're going to see such an amazing return on that. And I look at some of the people on your team now and I say, oh yeah, you, you clearly recognize these people are way better at this and at this and at this than I am. So of course these are great investments and it makes the whole, this synergy thing mm-hmm. and this you know, uh, whole is greater than the sum of the parts equation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, I know it's easy for me to say, uh, you know, all you need is a laptop and you can 
start a business when I had eight years of connections built up from, from my cartoon and I could go right to them. But a lot of our work came from me just scouring through trade magazines or blogs. And, you know, this person moved to this new place called Mundos. It was a basically Latin MTV. And I would just write them an email. Hey, I heard you got a new job. Here's our demo reel, which was ridiculously nothing at the time. Do you guys... Uh, if you guys ever need anything and they would write right, right back and we got one of our first maybe five projects from me just writing to some stranger at a place that I found in a you know article in a magazine so I think it's possible you 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 know you just have to have a, a drive for it a passion for what you're doing and a laptop <laughs> well there's a certain amount of hustle there right hustle. But I think yeah I- but, and there's also a certain amount of, I'll call it empathy, maybe like your willingness to get outside of your own bubble and say, Hey, I see you and you seem cool. You seem like you're trying to solve problems, right. kind of like I'm trying to solve problems. I mean, and since we believe the same things about making awesome stuff in the world, we should hang out and do business together. LinkedIn didn't exist. It stands when to I reason. did this, I think. There's many more resources right. for people now. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, I'm. Uh, I, I guess my my <clears throat> final question, because I know we're over our one hour point uh, by quite a bit, but this this has been so fun. Uh, what gets you excited about the future when you look ahead for awesome? Oh gosh, um, I honestly, I, 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 I oh gosh, I should know the answer to that. I I'm excited about. Um, our opportunity to, <laughs> I can't decide what I want to say first. I'm, I'm excited about continuing to make great stuff. We have a lot of opportunities um, for new client partnerships that I'm enthusiastic about. I'm excited about getting back to work with my friends at some point soon. But I'm also excited about um, some of the things I was talking about earlier with continuing to evolve um, some of the ways that we work with our artists and and uh, just making change in our industry um, if I can I think I think that's really gonna be something great if we can get to it and I think it's possible I mean I don't know that it's the answer you're looking <laughs> looking for as far as like my predictions for the future of animation and content. It's not exactly it, but it excites me. I think um, I'm enthusiastic about all that this turmoil in the last couple of years has brought us, which is the good parts of that. I think it will really change a lot of things for a lot of people in this really beautiful way. And sometimes you have to go through some darkness to get to the light. And I think we're headed in that direction as a group of people and I think that'll be really great. And um, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know that that's exactly what what uh, is a great prediction for the future of animation. But I think it's kind of a a, a nice outcome for uh, people. <laughs> yeah, maybe where we're headed. Yeah. Well, I, I I I can obviously sense the emotion in what you're saying, and and I share it. Um, because yes, maybe it is <clears throat> darkest before dawn and, um, uh, 
there are good things ahead after going through all this turmoil. And I'm extremely excited and proud to see where you're taking your company and the impact that you're making on your team and on your clients and, and also on the industry. So heartfelt thanks from me and all, all the folks on my team at RevThink for having this conversation. It was great. You've been listening to the Rev Thinking Podcast. For more information on upcoming accelerators, events, or to learn how RevThink advises creative entrepreneurs like you, connect with us at RevThink.com. I want to tell you about a place to connect that you might not know about. It's our online community called Rev Community. It's a great place to get to know other creative business owners like yourself, to share some thought leadership and read other encouragement, to be challenged in this new marketplace, new technology, ideas, economic trends, and it's a place to research. Check out many of the resources we have online, our videos, and of course, this podcast. Join us today at revthink.com slash community. If you're a creative studio owner, feel free to join us today at revthink.com slash community. I look forward to seeing you there.